wrote a social media post. And in this social media post that he, that he wrote, he quoted from an interview uh, from Albert Einstein. And when he quoted from this interview um, from Albert Einstein, there was a lot of people, a lot of atheists, really didn't like what he had written, what he had posted about. And in his post, he quoted from a 1925 interview that a man did with Albert Einstein. And so I want to I want to read through to you uh, the gist of that interview. Um, the name of the journalist was George Vinick and uh, Verick, and this is the interview with Albert Einstein. So it goes like this: Verick says this, the journalist. To what extent are you influenced by Christianity? Albert Einstein, the German uh, physicist, said this. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Varick said this, you accept the historical evidence of Jesus? And Einstein said this, unquestionably, no one could read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. How different, for instance, is the impression that we receive from an account of a legendary heroes of antiquity like Thesus. Thesus and other heroes of this type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. And then Dixon concludes his article with these words. He says this, I literally had folks suggesting that Varick's interview itself was a fraud, even though, as I pointed out, it was published in one of the 20th century America's most widely read magazines. I had to dig it out of the archives and put screenshots of the relevant pages of the interview before someone believed that Einstein actually said such a thing. And he includes it with this, such is the power of preference to shape what we believe. Let me ask you something, what, what shapes what you believe? What shapes the way that you live? What, what shapes the way that you might look at your, your job or your relationship? or how you might handle your finances or morality. What shapes what you believe in life? What are those guiding factors that, that move you to do the things that you do? Einstein said this, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. Let me ask you, when you read the Bible, do you come to the Bible with this idea that, that I want to learn something about God, or I want to learn something about Jesus, or I want to learn something about the way that I'm to live my life? I'm going to look at the Bible, maybe the Old Testament, and I'm going to look at it through, through the grid. Is, does this tell me something about the coming Messiah, the, the Christ? Is there something? Do, do I look at my life from that way when reading the Bible? Are you enthralled by the luminous figure of Jesus? I mean, here's, here's Einstein saying, I'm enthralled by who Jesus and how he's, how he's portrayed in the New Testament. And, and I want that to be a part of our lives. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bible, cell phone, whatever you may have. Hopefully you have a Bible with you. And what I want to do is I want to begin a series um, through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to begin, and, and I want to, uh, to, to go back to the, to the teachings of, of Jesus. I want to go back to what he said. I want to go back to how we lived. I want to go back to that. And, and I want to create a, a reference for how you and I can, can live our lives by looking at, at who Jesus is and what he had said for us. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to do a brief introduction. We're going to look at one verse, one verse, and then we're going to uh, start into this uh, again next week. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Notice how Mark begins this book. Hear the word of the Lord. Very simply. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning. 
and to open the Word of God before our very eyes. Father, the psalmist in Psalm 119 said this, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. Father, I pray that this morning, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word of God, through us being able to sing together and share together, that you would open our eyes to the reality of who Jesus is and that we would see the wonder and the beauty of his life. Father, I ask that you would speak to us this morning, not through me, but through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just answer one question. Why study this gospel? Why should we spend the next, I'm guessing, month? We may... We may be going through the Gospel of Mark through the next year. And so I want to just kind of begin by asking the question, you know, why should we study this gospel? Why should we spend so much time? And what can we hope to learn? And that's what I want to unpack this morning. So, so let's begin with the author. Who, who, who is the author? Well, we know it's, it simply says his name is Mark, but it's a bit unusual. His beginning is a little bit unusual. And, and some people would, would say, well, because of his unusual beginning and because we don't necessarily know a lot about him, that I, I don't really trust him as the author of Mark. Unless you begin to look at his story and maybe the unusualness of his story and begin to say, you know, why would they not include that unless it was actually from and about Mark and about his story and about he related his life to Jesus? So what do we know about Mark? Well, we know a little bit about him. We know that his mother was probably maybe a a wealthy owner, lived in the city of Jerusalem, had a house. If you go back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, you see that, remember when Peter was was in prison and all the people were gathering together to pray? Well, well, they were actually in, in her house. They were in her house and they were gathering together to pray. So we know that there's an association with with the, the, the book of Acts and gathering together and the church people gathering together to prayer. In Acts chapter 13, we actually find a little bit more information about him. We find that he's traveling with, with, uh, with Paul and, and he's, a, he's a partner, he's a helper. He's just kind of a guy that's just traveling along with them and he's doing the best that he can to be a supportive in the ministry. And then Acts chapter 13, we find a little bit more about who Mark was. Let me just read what the the text says about Mark and about his life and about how we might gain a little bit more information. Acts chapter 13, verse 13 says this. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. All of a sudden, we find out something different about Mark. Mark was a helper. Mark was working with him. But but he left left Paul. He he left them in Jerusalem. Pamphylia, and he, and he went back to Jerusalem. He went to, back to his mom's house, if you will. He left them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had someone maybe leave the ministry or, or leave a relationship that you have or, or leave something that you are a part of? I mean, here was Mark, involved with Paul, involved in ministry, involved in church planning, and all of a sudden he just packs up and says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to take off. You ever, you ever felt that tension, that experience in your life where someone's walked away from you? That's what we have here in the Gospel of Mark. And what we find out a little bit later is this, we find a little bit more about what actually happened between Paul and Mark. Though there was nothing recorded at this particular point in time, Paul references a little bit later in Acts chapter 15. Let me just read the text and show you the reality of the relationship between Paul and Mark and what was happening at that particular point in time. This is what they write. Acts chapter 15 verse 36 says this. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord. And let's see how they were doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him. Why? Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took 
Mark, and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the church. What we see here is that Paul tells us this is a really serious breach, if you will. Mark is, is called a deserter. And it was such a bad situation that there was a disagreement. There's actually a split in the church here. Barnabas wants to take him along. Paul says, no, I don't want to. We have this sharp disagreement. And what's going to happen here is we're going to have a parting of the ways, the first split, if you will. And it's all because of Mark being labeled as a deserter and a person who is, has a, uh, been, been a cause of a disagreement in the church. And, and we know what happens. Paul and, and Silas go on and they begin to minister. And we have the, a record of them in the book of Acts. But Mark just kind of disappears and we have no idea what's happened to him. All of a sudden we can't, we can't find for some almost 10 years, 10 years if you will, Mark's gone. He's been deserted from the church. We have no record of him and what's going on. Let me ask you something. Have you, have, you ever, have you ever failed? Have you ever done something wrong? Have you ever maybe had someone fail you, been a part of your ministry, ever let you down? Have you ever been so discouraged in life and maybe in ministry that you want to just pack up and you want to leave and you want to go home and you want to go do something else? I think that's a part of what's happening with Mark here. We don't know exactly the circumstances of his life, but he left, packed up, went home. For 10 years, he basically disappears. But what's beautiful about the gospel of Mark and what's beautiful about who this man is is that God radically changed his life. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, most likely through the ministry and influence of Paul and Peter, reconciled these two in a relationship together, and they began to minister and serve together. We don't know exactly, but sometime later, they got together, they settled whatever differences were there, and Paul begins to speak highly of John Mark in a wonderful and beautiful way. I want you to notice how Paul now refers to Mark later on. Paul calls Mark his fellow worker and partner in Philemon chapter 24. He's no longer a deserter anymore. He's now what? He's a fellow partner, if you will. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, written about the same time as Philemon says this. Mark shows his appreciation for Mark. Why? Because now we're, we're partners together and we're ministering together and we're served together. He's a fellow Jew and we're, we're all on the same team here working together, if you will. And Paul's getting ready to die. He knows he's probably going to die. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul references Mark once again. He says this, Timothy... I want you to get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. What a, what a beautiful picture of Mark, a deserter, a man who is the cause for disagreement, a split in the church, now being reconciled to Paul as a fellow worker, as a fellow partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul even say, you know what? He's useful to me in my ministry. I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to pass on, but I want you to bring Mark. Why? Because he. He's useful in the ministry to me. And we have been reconciled in our relationship together, if you will. The Holy Spirit used Paul and Peter to reconcile these people so that the cause of Christ would continue to move on. And maybe, in the record, maybe it was Peter. Maybe because of Peter's relationship with Mark that they began to work and minister together. Maybe God used Peter to bring these two people together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 says this. He... Uh, Peter refers to Mark as this, my son Mark. Some people believe that what happened was after this split, somehow Peter got a hold of Mark and actually was instrumental in bringing him to the Lord. And so we have the Gospel of Mark, written by a former deserter, written by a man who was part of a, 
a split, a disagreement in the church. And somehow, someway, God, through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, through Paul, got them together. And now we have this wonderful picture of who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. So three questions, or one question, three responses that I want to I deal with this morning as we kind of look do this and where we may be going this year. Number one is, why, why should we study this gospel? Now, what, what would be the point? Why, why look at this, this gospel? Well, let me just lay that out. First of all, this. This is God's word. Now, I understand you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, that's, that's pretty obvious. We understand that the gospel of Mark is God's word. But not everybody believes that. Bart Ehrman, who's written... Uh, he's a, a, a scholar. He's written numerous books about the historical inaccuracy of the New Testament. And one of the things that he would point out here, one of the things he'd point out, so listen, we don't have the original documents, and even the, the original documents, the ones that were written uh, and they're in the first and second century, they don't contain the name of the, of the, the title of who wrote the, the gospel. In other words, we can't be sure of what we have written before us. Now, what we can say is we can agree with this. We don't have the historical documents. We don't have all of the orig- any of the original documents. We have copies of copies. But can we say that just because we don't have the name and the title, can we say that we don't have confidence in this? I would agree with Bart Ehrman. We don't have in the title, I, Mark, wrote this book. We don't have that anywhere. But what we do have is this. We have this idea of a sense of community. We have this idea of community, of communication, of people working together, of people associating with each other. See, the early church, they knew who Mark was. They knew who these people were. They were associated very, very closely with them. There was a sense of community, this sense of of love and fellowship. They knew exactly what was going on. The, The other thing is when you go back and look historically about how they wrote biographies and things like that, when you go back and look in history, the standard of practice was this. A lot of people didn't put their name in the title. Plutarch has some 15 uh, autobiographies, and his name is not on there. Plato is the same way. So you have this idea, the standard of writing, that not everybody put their name in the title simply because they knew exactly who these people were. There was no question as to who was writing these documents as they were passed down hand-to-hand to people. There was a, the common knowledge of this. Well, how would we know this? Maybe, there, maybe there's a hint in the Bible. I want to give you a text. Notice Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Notice what it says. We know this assignment of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus when Jesus could. Notice what it says. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus. So why would you mention Alexander and Rufus? Why, why would you mention these people? Well, you would mention them only if they knew who they were. If Paul is writing from Rome to people persecuted in Rome, maybe what he's doing is he's including some names in there because they would know who these people were. There was an association with them. And by the way, if you look at Paul's letter to the people at Rome, he actually mentions Rufus. Romans chapter 16, verse 13 says this, Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. In other words, we have this idea of a close association, a community of people who knew each other. They knew Mark. They knew all of these people. They knew Rufus. They knew Alexander. They knew all of these people. So the document that they have, the writing that they have, they had full confidence this is from John Mark. I think there's another reason why they probably didn't put their name in this. It's because of this. This wasn't about them. This wasn't about Mark. It wasn't about John. It wasn't about Luke. It was about Matthew. This is about the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 again. It says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
This is good news concerning Jesus and all he has done. And the, and the titles were simply brought later when people began to question, as people began to die out, as they began to maybe question, they would put the, 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 the title in there. And it was always according to Mark, according to John, according to Luke. In other words, what they were doing is, this was not the gospel of Mark, the gospel of John. They wanted people to know that this is absolutely not about them. This is un, unequivocally about who Jesus is. Again, verse 1, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what Mark is saying, listen, in humility, we don't need to list our name because people know who it is. And I'm not writing about myself. I'm going to write about the nature and the character of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. But again, the early church, there was no question as to who this is written by. There was no question that they knew it was. What we can do is we can actually go back in history and we can go back to the early church fathers during the first and second century. We can go back and look at some of the documents that they wrote, some of them very early. That's why we believe in the historical accuracy of the Bible and the gospel. You can go back very early and see people giving testimony to who wrote these. Papias, who lived around 70 AD, that's really close to the time of Jesus. Notice what he writes. I'm going to put it on the screen. About the gospel of Mark and listen to how he describes who Mark is and what he does. This is very early to the time of Jesus. Notice what he says. Papias, an early church father, a church historian wrote this. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. Not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord, for he had not heard the Lord, nor he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles. So that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what had been heard, and to make no false statements regarding them. What this early quote says from our church father is that, Mark, no doubt, was listening and following Peter and writing what Peter had said and writing what Peter had stated. All of this time, remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, talking about this relationship, then, my son in faith? No doubt he knew Paul. No doubt that he knew Peter. And now what is he doing? He's writing as a person who walked with Peter and talked with Peter and saw all that Peter had done. And he's writing firsthand from the experiences that Peter had. And by the way, you can go back and you can look at a lot of different quotes from church history about this relationship between Peter and Mark. A man by the name of Justin Martyr wrote later in 150 AD, this document is actually called the Memoirs of Peter. And I could give you quotes from Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian. My, my point is the early church, going back early, early, knew that these documents were written by John. They knew and quoted and referenced how they came to be. John and Peter had this relationship with each other. They had this relationship in such a way that, that Peter was going out teaching, preaching, and Mark was following along, and how he was writing down and referencing all that Peter had done. And I think that's another reason why we can have confidence and another reason why we can believe that this is the Word of God. It's because of something that Peter wrote in first, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Notice what Peter writes. Listen to how Peter writes and how he's referencing what he wants to communicate to other people. He says this, 2 Peter chapter 1, 
So I will always remind you of these things. What am I reminding you of? Of your calling and your election. I want to remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. You see what he's saying? He said, listen, I, I know I'm getting ready to die. Jesus made, I'm getting ready to die. I'm going to pass on. So what do I want to do? I want to make sure that I'm passing on the absolute truth of what I'm writing about. And by the way, in verse 16, he goes on and says, we are eyewitnesses of what? Of the majesty, of the transfiguration. I saw the resurrected Jesus there. So what, what Peter's doing is, Peter's saying, listen, I, I want... I want to pass on the truths of God. I want to pass on the information of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he goes out and he does all these preaching. Mark comes alongside as his partner comes along and begins to write down what Peter has talked about, what Peter has preached, and what Peter has modeled in life. We have absolute confidence that this is the word of God. The community of faith affirmed it. The humility of the, of the writers affirmed it. Church historians confirm that this is absolutely unequivocally, the gospel of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, if you will. That's the first reason I want to go through this, is so that we have an understanding that this is God's word given to us. Second thing is this. Second reason for us to spend some time is because of who it's about. Notice it in verse 1 again. It says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, okay, I, I guess I would understand that, yeah, this, this would be about Jesus. I, I, I get that. But I think what's understanding is this. It's the manner in which Mark writes. It's the manner in which he writes. What he wants to do is he wants to put you and I, he, he wants to put us right in the middle of the action. Remember what Albert Einstein wrote? He said, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. That's what Mark is doing. Mark is telling a story, and what he wants to do is he wants to put you right in the middle of the story, and he wants to put me right in the middle of the story. And so that's what he does. He's writing in such a way so that we would know and understand that this is about Jesus. One man, a guy by the name of, he's a scholar, C. Bryan, he was asked the question, should the gospel of Mark be, should it be read aloud? And this is what he said. Absolutely yes. Mark was written for oral transmission and for the transmission of a continuous whole rather than for private study or silent reading. Let me ask you, when, when, when people transmit the, translate the Bible, what Gospels do they intentionally do first? Almost always, it's the Gospel of Mark. There's a reason for that. Imagine if you're sitting in a house church, and, and the leader comes up and says, I, I, want to, I want to read the Gospel. I want to read the Gospel of Mark to you. What, what would you hear? This is what I think you would hear. You would hear Mark use the word immediately over 42 times. In other words, there's this action going, going, and going. He's painting a picture. He's painting the story of the life of Jesus. In other words, things are happening right one after the other. Can I show you this from chapter 1? Listen to what happens in a matter of 12 verses. This is from the English Standard Version. Chapter 1, verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water. Verse 10, immediately the Spirit impelled him. Verse 18, and they immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, and immediately he called them. 
verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath. In a matter of 12 verses, you have Jesus' baptism, his temptation, the calling of the disciples, and, the, and the, uh, Jesus casting out the demon in the synagogue. And what I think Mark is doing, Mark is painting a story, and he wants to put you right in the middle of it. And this action is happening all around us. Will you sit and listen? Will we, will we be enthralled by the nature and the person of Jesus? The second thing I, I think about the manner of writing, he, he uses these things called a historical present. Now, I, I realize that some of us are going, I don't even know what that means. That means this. Jesus, doesn't, uh, Jesus didn't do something in the past. In other words, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't heal. I'm getting this goofed up. Jesus didn't just heal in the past. He didn't cast out demons in the past. He didn't do all of these things. When Mark refers to a sort of, it's not Jesus healed, he spoke. It means Jesus heals and Jesus speaks and Jesus continues to do this thing. In other words, in the way that he's writing, what he wants to do is he wants to put us right in the middle of this so that we don't forget that Jesus, yes, he did those things in the past, but he will also do those things in the present. He wants to put us right in the middle of the story, if you will. Jesus heals, Jesus speaks, Jesus loves, Jesus' compassion is still available to all of us. You know, if you watch the, the, uh, the football games two weeks ago, there's some pretty exciting games. And what's interesting is to watch it right after the, right after the game, they always send the, uh, the, the, the play-by-play, they send one of the people down on the field, and they run on the field, and what do they do? They go, they go almost immediately right after the game, right up to the to the quarterback, and they're running around, and they're saying congratulations, and they get that microphone, they put it right into his face, and they're asking, what does it feel like? Tell us what you just won. What does it feel like you're going to go to the Super Bowl? I think that's kind of the idea that Mark is doing. Mark is is painting this wonderful picture, and he's trying to paint a picture of of who Peter is and all the different experiences that Peter had. It's like he's he's sticking a microphone up into Peter's face. He says, Peter, you just saw Jesus walk on water. What was it like? He says, Man, I was amazed. I was amazed at what happened. And, and that phrase, amazed, comes out over and over again. Because what I think Mark is doing is Mark is painting a picture for us that Jesus is who he is, and he still continues to minister and serve in a mighty, powerful way. Not just something he did in the past, but something he did in the present. Mark writes in an incredibly vivid way. He talks about things like this. He talks about wild animals or Jesus in the wilderness. He calls John and James the sons of thunder. Before Jesus calms the, the storm, you find out he's asleep. And guess where his head's at? On a cushion. And then the, uh, the, the uh, feeding of the 5,000, it's mentioned there's this idea of, he had them sit down in groups of people in this idea of green grass. See, I, I think what Mark wants to do is Mark wants to put the readers, those first century readers, right in the middle of the story. So the way that he uses the word immediately, the way that he'd write his historical presence, putting us right in the middle so that we would see, feel, and experience Jesus today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever, that we might see that. And that they might know and experience that in the same way. We can study this because what it does is Mark wants to put us in the middle of the story. And the last thing I want to mention is this. We should study this gospel because of its message. This is great theology. Notice again verse 1 beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right from the very beginning. By the way, in the beginning, does, does that bring out something to you? Maybe John's gospel, maybe the first book of the, the book of Genesis in the beginning. In other words, John Mark is going back to the absolute very beginning. What is the beginning? 
It's about a guy by the name of Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's only the Son of God. There is great theology in this book that's going to teach us about the wonderful things. It's about the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the gospel uh, back in Roman time had this idea of joyful tidings. When the emperor had a birthday or when he came into power, there was this idea of joyful tidings, good news. Well, what, what Mark does is Mark draws a parallel and says, by the way, there is good news. There is joyful tidings. But this joyful tidings comes in the form of a guy by the name of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come to offer himself as a sacrifice. There's great teaching in here. There's great theology here. And it's tied to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. What's interesting is when you go back and you read this as we go through this, Almost every person who makes an affirmation of the title of that Jesus is the Son of God is outside of Israel. They're, not a, they're non-Jew. In other words, they're making observations. As they see the life of Jesus, as they see his miracles, as they see all of these things, the titles of Jesus become demonstrated, if you will, in the things that he does. He's living out the message. I think Mark's message is this, that he wants to know that Jesus cares for people. Mark chapter 10 we're told the name of, a, of the blind man that Jesus healed in Jericho. His name is Bartimaeus. And again, a way that Mark paints the picture, I think he wants to put us absolutely right there. And, and we get this picture of, of Bartimaeus going like this. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people are there and they say, no, no, be quiet. You know, you, you need to be quiet. And he, he keeps calling and crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I think the way that Mark is telling us the stories, he wants to see us to see Jesus in action. He wants us to feel the tension between the characters. Who do we identify with? The one calling and crying out for mercy or the one that says, quiet, don't bother Jesus because of who you want you to. I think what Mark wants is he wants us to feel the tension. And Mark is going to reveal to us that Jesus is the servant son of God. He's the one who come to serve and offer himself. I believe this Gospel of Mark has a, has a wonderful message about a passion narrative. In other words, it tells us about who Jesus is and ultimately what he's come to do. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, build on the life of Jesus, ministering, serving in Galilee. They get to Caesarea Philippi in Acts chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do the people say that I am? And that's where the bells go off and Peter makes ding, 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 ding. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Acts chapter 8, verse 31 is, is a dividing point in the gospel of Mark because it is there that we learn what Jesus is going to come and do. There's been hints all throughout the gospel, but now in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he says, I've come to do this. And we read these words. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, what? He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and three days later rise again. In other words, the message of Jesus is that I need to go to the cross. If you go back and read, already in chapter 3, there's a plot to kill Jesus. The Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of these people are beginning to plot Jesus, plot to kill Jesus. And, and now in Mark chapter 8, we have this explicit reference by Jesus, I must it is a divine necessity. I must go to the cross and offer myself as a sacrifice and a payment for sin. And that's the message. I think what we have is this, this wonderful idea, this passion narrative of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and who he is, what he's come to do for us, cleanse us for our sins. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, tells us most likely the theme of the gospel. It says this, the Son of Man 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Most people believe that that's the theme of the gospel. His passion is revealed in who he is and what he would do and how he would come and do all of these wonderful miracles, how we would love people, how we would teach people, and then he would go. Acts chapter, uh, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 3, he begins this journey to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross. Why? So that he can offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. It's a message about the passion for Jesus and an apologetic for the cross. I must go to Jerusalem and offer myself as a sacrifice. I think it's a message of encouragement for those who've blown it. Have you ever blown it in your life? We all have. Mark blew it, a deserter, part of a, a split in the church. Peter, a denier. Mark and Peter hook up, and what do we have? We have this wonderful testimony of how God transforms people's lives and how God uses people, even after they have failed. And I think, lastly, Mark's gospel is about encouraging people because the context is difficult times. Mark, probably writing from Rome, understands what's going on in Rome. Nero is a bad dude. A lot of bad things are going on. He would eventually... A fire was started. He would eventually kill Christians and most likely a lot of persecutions going on. And so maybe what Mark wants to do is he said, listen, I, I want to encourage these, this fledgling, if you will, band of Christians in Rome. And I want to encourage them and I want to build them up. And the way that I'm going to do that is this. I'm going to encourage them by taking them back to who Jesus is and what he said. I'm going to give them a record of life, death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to give them an understanding of who Jesus is is, and how we now, as his disciples and as his followers, how we are to live. I think that's one of the most important messages here, is that Jesus teaches us how we are to live and how we are to be a disciple and what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because what he does is he calls us to decision. Who is this that the wind and waves obey him? In other words, if you've seen a miracle, guys, who is this? And what does this person mean in your life? And how will you respond? Over and over, we are invited to respond to the narrative, respond to the story of Jesus. I think that's a great opportunity for us to learn about the life, death, burial, specifically in resurrection of who Jesus is, and how that would transform our lives. I believe what Albert Einstein said. I believe that that the scriptures pulsate the very beauty and wonder of who Jesus is. And as we hopefully read and study and meditate on God's word, as we go through this, what it will do is it will transform our lives to understand what it means to follow him, to be a disciple of Jesus, and to love him and to follow him. And that's what I want to do. I hope you'll join us. You know, I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to be able to go back to the words of Jesus, to the life of Jesus to probably one of the first Gospels ever written, to go back and look at his life and to study it and see how we are to live and to love Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for who Jesus is. Father, I thank you that he's transformed our lives. Father, I thank you that we have the word of God that we can read and study and meditate. It gives us an, act, uh, an actual portrayal of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who came and offered himself as a sacrifice and payment for our sins. So, Father, I ask that you would open our minds and our hearts ultimately to see Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And, Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.